0: All right, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, second to last class. So it's been a fun ride so far. We've still got tonight and one more to go. Um, and these are these are really fun ones. Like I said last week we kind of hit that pivot point where we lay the foundation, we try and dig really deep and, and lay that well. And then towards the end it gets just way more practical. Okay, we've, we've done our, our early digging and we've, we've laid that foundation Then we can go from there. Um, I do want to just kind of revisit the syllabus and just kind of walk through, remind you of the paper that's coming up, um, and kind of, again, just re-emphasize, I think this class is super important for us to have, that's why I put the work into teaching it, and I think you think it's important because you're here. Um, but we all know we don't want it to stay here. This class needs to push you outside the classroom, um, and so the, the writing assignment has five questions that we want to answer, all geared towards pushing us out. One, where do I need to repent of thinking of others as the enemy? Talk about that's a massive part of the polarizing world we live in. Number two, who's one person who's not a Christian that I can reach with the gospel? Number three, what is that person's biggest obstacle to believing the gospel? Number four, how will I use the material from this class to engage in respectful, yet meaningful dialogue with that person? And number five, how can I assist other Christians in growing to create a less polarizing environment. So if you want to do, you know, I've had people write out their answers and bring it in in that way, and that's fine if you want to do that. If you just want to email me, Justin at parkside.org, that's fine, Um, but that'll be due at the conclusion of next week's class. Just get that in as as quickly as possible um, so that what we, we invest in here, these whatever six, eight hours it's been, are not wasted, right? We can use that and go out Um, and seek to honor God and fulfill the Great Commission in that way. Um, Also, there's the reading, uh, Who is Jesus? I know you guys are well on your way towards that. We've we've talked about that at each week. Um, But also, selecting one book from the recommended reading to add to your 2019 reading list. I'm going to complete one of these by the end of 2019. Maybe there's multiple, um, but when you turn in your paper, just note on there, Yes, this is the um, the book that I plan to read off of the recommended reading oh. in 2019. You're
1: gonna want a paper on
0: that too, I bet. I'm not gonna ask stuff. you for a paper on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if you wanna grab lunch and discuss it, I would, uh, I'll, oh, sure. I'll, I'll do that. But the... Uh, so do you want
1: MLA, APA? Turabian.
0: Okay. Turabian, yeah, we'll okay. yeah, go okay. footnotes and bibliography. No works cited, no endnotes. Single space, um, <laughs> double
1: space. <laughs> uh, pencil write.
0: Um, By the way, I know we ran out of syllabi. Does everybody have one? Does anybody need one? Uh, I'll take another one. Take another one? Okay. Yep. And then that kind of is the intro part there. Let's let's quickly review last week so that we can kind of bring that to bear on today's discussion. We talked a lot about contextualization last week. Big word that is actually not that difficult once you start to break it down, but when we say contextualization... What do we mean by that? Taking the unchanging truth of
2: the gospel and putting it into the language, into language
1: that context we're trying to reach. I'm sure I didn't copy that very well. <laughs> that- Here, taking
0: the unchanging truth of the gospel and putting it into language that people can understand. Right? We talked about. You could say, just give them the gospel and quote John three sixteen in German. Like, well, you gave them the gospel, but you didn't put it in language they could understand. And similarly, there's there's a lot of ways where we want to say, the people that I know, that I understand, that I talk to, how can I find a connecting point between the gospel and their life and help them to understand how this intersects? Um, I didn't talk about it much last week. Um, I love the movie Gladiator. Um, and I can't help but watch that without a million different connection points of, um, you know, at the very beginning, Maximus says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. There's all kinds of ways in which that's true, but there's also a ton of ways in which that's actually false. Of As a Christian, the bad I do isn't echoing in eternity. And so, I, to me, that's kind of one of those intersecting points of like, Man, let's watch Gladiator together. And maybe from that, there there can be an opportunity to contextualize the gospel through that. Um, What we don't mean by contextualization is giving people what they want to hear. I've got to make sure we're clear about that. It's not compromising the gospel, or it shouldn't be. For some it might be, but it ought not be. Um, Remember we said contextualization doesn't mean that I don't give people the gospel. It does mean that I'm strategic. And how I give people the gospel and boiling it down we said there were kind of three things that we wanted to do the first of which was resonate with someone hear where their heart's at right we use that term the existential cry which can be a little bit ambiguous but it's hear what they're longing for and resonate with that resonate was number one what was number two dismantle, dismantle. and we when we say dismantle what do we mean by that Christy did a great job taking notes, but I'm going to ban you from answering on this one. <laughs> when we say dismantle, what do we mean by that? It's uh,
2: talking about why the narrative that they're applying doesn't actually solve the
0: problem. Bingo. That's exactly right. And it's talking about how the, the narrative that they're embracing can't actually solve this, this cry of their heart. And then gospel... Would obviously then be showing. Here's how the gospel does actually speak to that cry of your heart, what you're longing for, um, this other thing that you're trying to find it in. It can't, but the gospel can And here's how. We talked about that in the um, kind of the outline of God, Man, Christ response. And obviously, there's there's various entry points to that, right? There's points where I may pick up and I may. Talk more about the man side and the brokenness side. I may talk more about God as creator. I may talk more about Christ and his work on the cross based on how I contextualize the message. But ultimately, we found ourselves coming back to different ways to walk through God, man, Christ response. So, right off the bat, I want to hop into a group discussion a little bit differently than we've done the prior weeks and think on that resonate, dismantle gospel. Because Um, Someone has said, being heard is so close to being loved that for most people they can't tell the difference. Think about that. Being heard is so close to being loved that for most people they can't tell the difference. That's what the resonate piece does. It says, I hear you. And thus I feel loved. And we're able to actually have a meaningful conversation. So I'm going to jump right into group discussion with, with this um, question on the, on the screen. Resonate, dismantle, gospel. Which of these three is most difficult for you? What is one way you can grow in this area this week? So grab somebody in a, in a row near you or an aisle. Uh, feel free to move around as you need. Um, but resonate, dismantle, gospel. Which of these three is most difficult for you? And then how can you grow in that area this week? Okay, give you about three minutes here, go ahead. All right, Um, heard some good discussion there. Um, Hopefully we're starting to kind of process through. Here's how I can take these things and at least identify an area of growth and start to think through. And, And you'll be amazed what happens as you start to recognize, I'd like to grow in this area. You'll find yourself in a conversation And just by kind of stepping out and taking that first step of, I know I ought to have this conversation now that your awareness is raised a little bit for, Hey, I need to really work to show how their narrative can't fulfill the story. Just the awareness will help you to do that. Like most of the time you've already got the skills you need. You've got the knowledge you need. It's just a little bit of awareness of, Hey, I need to focus on this. Um, So step out in confidence this week and have those conversations. Um, tonight's outline, I don't even think I put this on the note sheet, but just to kind of frame it, it's, it's, it's really simple. The, the title of the class is Yeah, But. So in other words, you pick up on last week, resonate, dismantle gospel, present the gospel. Here's how the gospel fulfills what you are looking for. It satisfies the cry of the human heart. Someone says, yeah, that may, may be the case, but what about this other argument? Right? And so what we're going to do tonight is we're only going to look at two of those. Um, because if you try and tackle too many, you end up doing nothing at all, right? And I'll give you some resources that can help you do more of a deep dive on different issues that perhaps um, you'd like to investigate. Um, and so the theme that we'll use tonight is a similar kind of outline as before. Is one is this. Understand the person behind the defeater. And then two, examine the specific defeater argument. The defeater is, yeah, but this, but this mm-hmm. argument disproves what you have to say about the gospel. Um, And one of the main things that you'll notice as you kind of listen back through each class is we want to grow in empathy for those who believe and think differently than us. Right? And so the the first key then is to think about who is the person behind the defeater before I say, well, let me just give you a logical breakdown of what they say and how it's logically fallacious and we can move on, right? Um, So... As we begin to understand the person behind the defeater i I would start by saying almost every second of the day when someone makes a statement to you you're either in your mind red lighting that statement or green lighting it yeah that's probably true yeah that's probably false subconsciously it just happens all the time right whether you're watching um, some political talking head whether you're listening to your students or children tell you how their friend or sister or brother got a bloody nose. Whether you're listening, like, it's, it's a coworker telling you what the boss actually said to them. As they say that, in your mind, kind of red light, yeah, that's, that's garbage, that's probably not what happened. Or green light, yep, that seems valid, I bet that's kind of how it went. So let me just give you a couple of examples to help illustrate this. First person walks up to you. Bro, last night a a UFO landed in our backyard and E.T. and his four brothers got out and they had dinner with our family. And after dinner was over, only one second of Earth time had passed. at At every step there, you are red lighting that. Like, nope, nope, nope. Now, do you actually have any data to disprove... What I just said happened. You have no facts. You have no evidence. If anything, you have an eyewitness account, which should be the most persuasive. But you're red lighting it. We'll explain why in a second. But then there's a second set of truth claims. Now, now I say this: Jesus was born of a virgin. He died, but then came back from the dead. To go up into the clouds, and one day we'll come back down out of the clouds. And most of you, when I say that, think, oh yeah, that's the gospel. Green light, green light, yeah, that's great, amen, praise the Lord, brother, preach it. (laughs) And yet, to someone who's maybe not had the same upbringing as you, it sounds just as ludicrous as the whole UFO bit. Right, And so one of the things that there's, there's all kinds of terms that sociologists give to to kind of indicate why do you red light or green light something? Right, maybe the one that is is most helpful for me to wrap my mind around is they call them plausibility structures. Here's why I find this plausible because dot, dot, dot. The term isn't really that important. Um, But there's generally three things that people say um, kind of cause me to red light or green light something. And the first one is community. Or the people that I'm closest with, what my friends believe, what my family believes. And so, so, for example, if you come to church and somebody says this piece about the UFO to you, you're red-lighting it. If your dad happens to be a reliable kind of person and he calls you, like, completely, like, beside himself, you are not going to believe what just happened. You're automatically going to green-light that more than if it's a random person at church. But your community has a massive impact on whether you're red lighting or green lighting, who your friends are, what they believe. Another example here, the talk about the transgender revolution that's going on in America right now. Um, most of America hasn't done a second's worth of research on this, right? Facebook doesn't count, okay? Um, it, but their community tells them that they need to be more accepting of trans people and trans ideology, and because the community says that, however they define their community, that could be a flexible term right Their, their news pundit community, their local newspaper community, their school district community, the the nurse, doctor, p- physician's assistant they know, because these trusted sources near them say, you need to be more accepting, yes, I need to. So my community is a, a massive influence in whether I red light or green light certain things. Um, the second one is your experiences. Okay, now none of you can relate to the whole UFO landed in my backyard bit, and so it made it really hard for you to kind of resonate in green like that. Probably the easiest thing for me to connect this experience to is when I was in college playing basketball, there's this phrase you use, mind over matter, right? And it basically means that your mind will almost always fail before your body does when you're doing strenuous exercise which means basically all the time you can do more than you are. Like you can almost endlessly say, yes, I can do this for another 30 seconds. And when that 30 seconds is done, yes, I can do this for another 30 seconds. It's on and on and on. And so when I was coaching, I would have kids that are literally thinking, I, I can't do this, coach. I am completely incapable. And my experience tells me oh, you, you guys are, like, you don't even begin to understand. You can go for a whole other hour at this rate. And But they're not necessarily lying to me or just being lazy, like it's hardworking kids, but they haven't experienced that where their mind pushes through in that way. And so what seems completely normal, completely plausible to me, seems completely insane to them. So when I've sat down and I've watched one of my teammates do a 45-minute wall sit, wall sit is just this... I just sit at the wall like this. He sat there for 45 minutes. And they tell me, oh, Coach, I can't do two minutes. I, I'm like, guys, that's craziness. You are just so mentally weak, you don't get it.
1: <laughs>
0: but they think I'm the crazy one because they don't have that experience. It's not a data driven thing. I'm not bringing them research articles and they're not bringing them to me. It's what I've seen. Um,
2: Scott. When, during the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, when Susan Bladey Ford was giving her testimony, there's a lot of red light, green lighting going on. And there would be a lot of women who would green light it because, well, this happened to me, so I believe her. Yes. She's telling the truth because this happened to me.
0: And similarly, there's a lot of men who are red lighting it, and there's a whole substructure of psychologically whether they were falsely accused or whether they're hoping that their accuser doesn't come out. And, and it scares them. And so they red light it yeah. like, because we got to shut down the whole movement. Otherwise I might be exposed.
2: Yeah. And then their community. And if you wanted Kavanaugh to be guilty, you believed it. If you didn't, if you wanted him to be the judge, you didn't believe it. I mean, there's just red light, green light. Going on.
0: And, and who in the Kavanaugh hearings in yeah. the general public actually had the data that goes back to the events that we're investigating. Yeah. Nobody, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a great example of that. Um, the third one that we do want to look at is facts, evidence, and data. I kind of lump those three together, facts, evidence, data. And this one is legitimate. This has real value in determining whether we red light or green light something. But generally speaking, we overvalue this one like exponentially, especially in conversations regarding faith. Right, We think, hey, you need to take this apologetics class with me. You need to listen to this podcast. You need to read this book. You need to dot, dot, dot. Um, it's not that those things are false. It's just that we way overemphasize facts, evidence, data. In the name, again, it's not, um, let's not be too critical of Christians in this regard. In a post-truth society where relativism abounds, people feel like, I feel like, I need to plant my flag on, there is truth, you can know God, and let me use logic to demonstrate not only that you, there is such a thing as truth, but you can know him, and here's how, and dot, dot, dot. It's it's not a faulty system, but as we react to relativism, it's caused us to diminish the the role of community and experience in red-lighting and green-lighting certain beliefs, that makes sense to us. Um, on the facts, evidence data piece, and this is exactly what Scott was just saying, we often are are green lighting facts that we want to be true and red lighting data that we don't want to be true, and there's a whole there's a there's a litany of reasons we may or may not want them to be true. Um, and, it, and it's all subconscious, right? So from an evangelistic standpoint, from a relational standpoint, from a disciple discipleship standpoint, we've got to understand If somebody knows nobody that is a Christian, maybe one of the best things I can do at an entry level is just have them start hanging out with some Christians. Not because that's automatically the Savior thing and it's, you know, groupthink and bring people in, but it's going to be really difficult for you to, to see this as a viable option if you've never known someone or never known more than one person who believes that way um, from an experience standpoint, how exactly would you welcome someone into the experience of how God can change your life? That one is, is more challenging, right? And this goes back to the very first week we talked about incarnational ministry. That was the approach of Jesus. And we want that to be our approach as well. Right? And we talked about entering their world and opening our home. And as those relationships start to build in that way, they can see an experience that's different. It says, oh, there's a different way forward. I've never seen this before, but that's really intriguing. And we talked about the importance of having genuinely Christian rhythms in your life. Right, so maybe, maybe your family, like Rosaria Butterfield's, Maybe you guys sing a hymn before dinner or sing the doxology before dinner instead of doing kind of a token rote prayer. Okay, hey, this is good for us. This is good for me to do this, to get past a, a rote prayer. But as I invite people into, it also has, um, it forms me spiritually and it forms them spiritually, if I can say it that way. Um, and so hopefully that's kind of starting to see the connections between like the, the cumulative case we're trying to build uh, throughout the class. On facts, evidence, and data, you should have a a blank on your uh, your notes. She says, the key is to undersell your argument with persistence. What I mean by that is, while we overvalue this aspect of um, Christian faith, it doesn't mean it's unimportant. But for somebody who's kind of like on the fence, most of us, if, if you're in this class, you've probably got the ability to rattle off a pretty long apologetic argument for what the, the point is that you're arguing for, right? The person you're talking to is kind of like their information meter caps at like a 30-second soundbite from you on that topic, at least at an entry level, right? So example of what this looked like, um, I was I was flying. I forget where I was flying. I'm sitting down next to this guy. And, um, oh, I know where I was going. I was going to Los Angeles. I was working on my master's degree. Um, and I was in apologetics. And so it made a great flight intro. Oh, what are you flying for? Oh, I'm, I'm on a quest to determine which world religion is true. And that opens up all these fascinating discussions, right? And the guy says to me, well, uh, w- which one do you think so far? I said, well, I, based on all my research and what I can find in the evidence, I think it's Christianity. And he says, well, you know, the Bible is just a made-up fairy tale, and been changed all these times, and, you know, he, he goes along. And I just, now, given I'm in a class on the reliability of Scripture right now, right? I read, like, eight, hundred, five hundred page books in the last six months. Like, if anybody is ready to go toe-to-toe with this guy, I'm as <laughs> equipped as I'll ever be right now. But I have to recognize this guy doesn't want that answer. So, so I just said... You know, there's actually a ton of evidence that says the exact opposite, that the Bible's been faithfully preserved for over 2,000 years. And he immediately goes back to showing me pictures of his grandkids on his phone. And I'm okay with that. Because I know I can't argue him into Christianity. So we go back and we look at more pictures and we're on a three, four hour flight. 45 minutes later, somehow the Bible comes up. Well, you know... The Bible's just made up fairy tale. uh, It's been changed through all these different translations through the years. Same response. Well, you know, all the evidence I've been able to uncover, all the research I've done says the exact opposite, that it's actually been faithfully transmitted, and we have a reliable copy of what was actually the words of Jesus. Leave it there. I'm not giving the whole manuscript, archaeology, fulfilled prophecy. (laughs) I'm not doing all that just yet. Just going to undersell it. So here's, like, there actually is a different perspective. And this time he comes back and he says, you know, I guess when I say that, I haven't looked at the evidence myself. I've just been repeating what other people have said to me. I said, hey, mm-hmm. that's all right because I did that for a long time too and I had to dig in myself. I'd encourage you, here's one book that might be helpful if you want to study it. And we left it there and we kept moving on. Now, that's tough because you're on an airplane and it's hard to have an extended relationship with somebody. But had that been somebody where I had a long-term relationship, underselling my point with persistence. I'm not going to back off from it, but I'm not going to just keep ramping up and, and making it longer, 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 longer. Eventually, I'm giving them the opportunity to safely say, hey, Justin, you said this. And I'm not sure I've thought through that all the way. I'm curious about what you had to say. Can you tell me why you said that? And then I have their permission to have a longer conversation. I know all along I can't argue them into Christianity, so I'm never going to try to win that game. But um, the analogy that was most helpful for me in that is my goal is not to argue them into Christianity, but to put a pebble in their shoe. And if I undersell my case with persistence, that puts a pebble in their shoe. And every single step they take, they feel that thing pricking their heel. And eventually, you got to do something about the pebble in your shoe. And I can't force them to bring it to me. They can dump it out along the way if they want. But I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit's going to use that and provide an opportunity either for me to take that next step or for them to take that next step. So when we look at the person behind the defeater argument we have to recognize the importance of community, the importance of experience, and also the importance of evidence, facts, and data, but to not overvalue the last one too much, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, Rob? So when
1: you think about having a biblical worldview, would you say that's swept into the community? Because Some people would have a non-biblical worldview, some people have a biblical worldview, and they'd use that to interpret the facts, evidence, and data, right? So they have... So if we have, so for example, some people would say that um, you know when you look at um, coal, when you look at some fossils, you would have carbon-14 in there. Yep. So if you have a biblical worldview, you'd say, well, that's evidence of a younger, okay. whereas a person who does not have a biblical view would say, well, that's evidence of contamination. Yes. So you have, you have, the, this, the evidence would be carbon-14 is in the sample, and so one would have a rescue device that would say, well, it's a sampling error, one would have, a rescue device would so say it's biblical yep. so how would you, where would you classify yeah that? exactly
0: um, I was just probably a combination of both probably more in the um, in the community as you said yep. but also it's experiential because if you've sat if I've sat through your class on archaeology all of a sudden that's not just my community that you're my friend that becomes my experience that I've discussed and I've looked at you know, whatever artifacts you've brought to the table, whatever graphs you've put up there, and I've I'm experiencing data in a kind of a a live streaming way, if you will, um, and so it, it kind of coalesces both of those together. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and but that gets that gets again to the kind of the point that that Scott was making is everybody's got their facts, and, it, and I look at those facts through such a grid and. We come to it when it's like, man, why can't you just accept my facts? And there's so much more that goes into my beliefs and the commitments that I make in my faith. Even as Pastor Chris was saying this morning, everybody's got faith. And the way I read those facts is dramatically altered. Um, So a question I want to give to you guys to discuss as a group is this, where have you seen community or experience shape your beliefs more than facts, data, and evidence? Because I think recognize this happens to me. It's not just somebody out there that is impacted in this way is significant for us. Um, and we don't have to go small groups on this one. Let's, let's go large group. Where have you seen community or experience shape your beliefs more than facts, data, and evidence? And Christy. Um, I know that when I was in... School um, and they talked about the theory of evolution. It was stated in such a way that it was a fact
1: that I had never even considered the word theory in it. And it wasn't until um, I, quite frankly, started in my
0: mid 20s, started kind of walking with the Lord that and talked to other people that, who, had, who were Christians who said, Well, it's just a theory. And I was like, No,
1: it's not, it's a fact because that's exactly how it right. was portrayed in my classes in high school was my community my experience
0: was this is this has been a proven thing hmm. um even if they didn't say it that way that's exactly how yeah, it, right. it was until i had a different community around me that i realized that you could then start to see the evidence mm-hmm. in a different light and consider a different yeah i think just the way we're raised does that
2: if you were raised in a christian home and your family is the one providing you with that information that Jesus is real, you're not asking for any facts to back that up or the data or the evidence. Mm-hmm. You're just, my parents said it's true, so yep. it must be true. And vice versa. If you grew up in a non-Christian home...
0: Sure. At a real, at a real low, low-hanging low fruit level, I mean, just think it, if you go to a church, if you stop going to this church and go to one that's more conservative... Odds are within six months, you're probably not going to be wearing jeans on Sunday morning. Probably just put khakis on, maybe dress pants. And if you're at a church that, where that's the norm of suit tie that, and you go to a different church that's more laid back, odds are within six months to a year, you're probably wearing jeans, occasionally untucking your shirt. You know, you, of course, you blame it on what me am going to the Colts game afterwards, and I have to, you know, be ready for that. But that's just. It's your, your community, those people that you're around shaping, oh, this seems acceptable now. Really, that's not nearly as significant as the examples you guys cited, but it, you see that playing out all the time. And all those arguments that used to be like, well, I believe we should give God our best, or I think we should be like people who are coming in the door so they feel comfortable. Like whatever spectrum you fall on, the facts, evidence, data side of that, all of a sudden becomes irrelevant because your community and your experience dictates otherwise. Any other thoughts there on where you've seen community or experience shape your beliefs more than facts, evidence, and data?
1: Well, Church and God got kind of a bad rap in the in the eighties with a lot of evangelism made the television and some evangelists got in a lot of trouble for it. And at one point it was though the church and God were a very were were uncool and unpopular and and yeah uh, uh, it was just weird. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it, so, it puts it puts a social pressure on. No, I wouldn't associate with that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of bad, a bad rap, and I don't know. Our church was it's kind of hard to put words. on <laughs> Yeah, the church, churches a while back, I feel like are different than they are. I think they're better than now than what they were hmm. thirty years ago. That's what I was surrounded by it. Yeah. I think the churches nowadays are becoming a little bit more facts, data, evidence focused and just everybody make, make something and bring it to church or, you know, smile and say hello and wear a suit and be kind to one another. Right, yeah. Anybody else? I think
2: if we were to stick with how the church does things, it's like, uh, you know, being the Baptist, you know, how we do communion. Hmm. you know uh, we always did it first, first Sunday of the month or you know some churches did it once every three months or once sure. every four months and, and then comes along a, a pastor who's never been a Baptist and says you know what, it's part of part of uh, uh, the response to, this, to the message and so let's, let's do it every week, Every week. You know? yeah. and I, I went back to my college at Faith Baptist Bible College to one of the and I said you know our church is not it every Sunday and Pass around anything. We all go up front. And, and it, it, I said, you know what? As I look at Scripture, there's nowhere in Scripture where it tells you how to do it. Right.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> it's <laughs> it's red lighted.
2: Oh, it's red lighted immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And we used to talk in, about how, the order of service. You know, I've had oh, I would never want to have a sermon person You know, and, and, and you know, and, and it just so mm-hmm. he said, yeah. and, and he gave a very worldly things. I wouldn't want anybody in the. Uh, and if they responded in, you know, in a counseling room or well, passing out from the offering plate. Yep. You know, and so, um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that.
0: Right. There's just it, things that you hear, and at the time, because it comes from a trusted source, it okay. seems obvious and at the worst acceptable. Everybody in the you, church you, had
2: the same order of service. Yeah. You know, you sing, pray, sing some more, have a special music, have an offering, have maybe another song, or maybe not. But that yeah. essays, that's right. must be in the
0: Bible. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the early church did it, they pretty say.
2: Pretty points in
0: a poem. You know. Yeah, um, that's good stuff. All right, so let's move on here, and I need somebody to promise me that they can be um, the bad guy and interrupt me. Um, Will you do that? That's great. Thank you, dear. You might have an experienced uh, person
1: here for that. Yes. Yes,
0: exactly. So I need, um, I need you to stop me at 7 o'clock because we have two defeaters that I want to look at, and the second one's going to take more time than the first. And um, if, we, if we go past 7, then we're not going to leave ourselves enough time. So we may not get to everything on the first one, but we're going to make as much progress as we can. <laughs> Um, and so the first defeater argument that we want to talk about, we already looked at the person behind the defeater, and now we're going to look at a couple of defeater arguments. The first one is this, the exclusivity of the gospel, meaning there can only be one way. That's, that's the problem. Um, I had a video I was going to show you, and I'm not going to show it, so I will post the link on, on the hub tonight so that you can go back and look. Um, What I had hoped to do was to have someone who embraces this school of thought share their own perspective. Because I think defining with charity is important. And to let someone make their case in their own words is always better than to have me make their case for them. Um, But basically, um, and you'll watch the video, and the guy says that saying there's only one way to God is, um, he says a couple of things. He says, one, it's it's the spiritual version of racism. My way is better than your way. Um, since this is the cause of all the oppression in the world, uh, all the people that are being... Uh, I won't extend that argument, I guess. I'll let you see it for him. Uh, it's the root of all violence. In other words, as Christopher Hitchens, before he passed, used to say, um, how many suicide bombers have you heard of that aren't religiously motivated? It's a fair point that he, that he raises. Um, and all, all these sorts of things. If This is the problem of... Exclusivity applied to any particular religion, and, and certainly Christians would affirm Jesus' words in John fourteen six: "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." So this is a big defeater argument for people. They look and say, "This is a problem," um, and so there's there's a couple of um, different premises, different. Forms of the argument that undergird this kind of umbrella of the problem of exclusivity, and these are the ones that are listed in your notes. And so, I just want to talk through a couple of them, um, and and look at how we respond um, to to each of them. What we'll do is today, it's kind of looking at more the logical side of those arguments, and then and kind of see how they, in a sense, are self-defeating. And then next week is where we can actually look at the, the positive case for Christianity in light of these, these questions and issues. So that's kind of what I referenced this morning in the service. of. It's a both end this week and next because we just don't have time to do it in one. So the first um, premise to the problem of exclusivity is that you say something along the lines of all major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. All majors are are equally valid, and basically they teach the same thing, what many will say. In response, there, I would simply take us right back to our what is the gospel, four words, God, man, Christ response. Think of the questions that are being asked by those, and just ask someone those questions. Okay? Who is God? Buddhist doesn't believe. In a personal God, perhaps in no God. There's various schools of Buddhism. There's atheistic and there's non-atheistic, um, but certainly not a personal God, right? Islam doesn't believe that Jesus is God, and they do believe that Allah cannot be known. He's so transcendent, so far above and beyond us that he can't be known, his will can't be known. Um, you know, Entrance to heaven cannot be known. There's all sorts of aspects there. Christianity believes in a God who holds people accountable and can't be reduced merely to love. You have different schools of Christianity. There's all these things you can look at and say, these are not just different veins. These are totally different and diametrically opposed ideas. Right. So you, you kind of walk through that way. And, and what someone is basically <coughs> suggesting here is Doctrine isn't that important. What you, in theology proper, we would say, what do you believe about God? It's not that important. And yet, what's the doctrine they're pushing? Doctrine isn't important, is their core doctrine that's a non negotiable. Right? And so, in that way, it's I'm asserting my own doctrine. What's my doctrine? Why well, say Jesus is the only way? That's the Christian doctrine that is important to me. Well, this other person's doctrine is is doctrine doesn't matter. And that's also non-negotiable. And if I violate their non-negotiable, then I'm no longer on the straight and narrow, right? So ultimately this position ends up being exclusive in its own way. It's just kind of a, an inverted backwards sort of way, if that makes sense. The second premise that we often hear is that each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Each can see part of the spiritual truth. None can see the whole truth. Um, Tim Keller's um, book, The Reason for God, the very first chapter, talks about this problem. And it's, um, it does a really good job of addressing this. Um, you can kind of see mine is very worn and pages are kind of turning yellow. It was uh, I taught from this for a number of years um, when I was teaching in high school. Um, and and he, he cites this example I think is helpful on this one. You imagine, and this is kind of how the, uh, those who claim This statement, each religion sees sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth, often will tell an example of people who come to an elephant. And one guy feels the trunk and says, oh, this is long and smooth and curvy. It feels kind of like a snake. And the other guy comes and he wraps his arms around the, um, the leg of the elephant. Oh, this is sturdy and tall and round, kind of like a tree. And the other one walks up and feels the side of the elephant. Oh, this is smooth. And I forget what the exact aspect is. Nobody thinks it's an elephant because they're blind men. They see part of the spiritual truth, but not the whole truth. And so what you're saying is, well, what we actually need is all of you are partially right but you need a zoomed-out perspective. And if you could have the zoomed-out perspective, then you would see how the parts relate to the whole, and you're all partly right. It's kind of how the objection goes, right? But what the objection assumes is that while everybody feeling around on the elephant is blind and can only see part of it, the objector, me, I'm the person with perfect vision and perfect perspective, and I can step back and say oh, look, all of you guys are just seeing parts, but I see the whole. And I'm certain that I see the whole, and no one else sees the whole. And it ends up being self-defeating in that way. If that, does that make sense, or is that starting to get a little little too abstract there?
1: So we see the whole truth. As Christians, we see the whole truth.
0: Right. That, that, yeah. Each religion claims they see the whole truth, and their way is the only way. Well, the
1: other, yeah, I mean, I agree with that, because I've had other people from other religions tell me things, and it didn't really quite... At the end of the conversation, going, okay, well, where's the love here? Where's the, we're not really close. What you said sounds really good. It makes sense. It's kind of obvious. But, you know, but where's the love? Where's the, the closure of the loop here, so to speak? Correct. So I can definitely, me personally, I can definitely relate to it. It Makes sense.
0: Yes. So in, in essence, the person is saying, you can't see the whole, but I can yeah. see the whole. And then the question is, well, why should I trust that? you're the only person who can see the whole, but nobody else that's got any kind of religious perspective, what, how can you prove that you're the only person that sees the whole, but no one else does? So in that sense, the, it, it boomerangs on itself. Um, the next premise, religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. Too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. Um, let me just read a section from Keller's book here that will keep us from going too long and and I think it it makes the point well Um, so he says people often say if you were born in Morocco you wouldn't be a Christian but rather a Muslim in other words you grew up in a kind of a Judeo-Christian box and therefore you embrace Judeo-Christian values you say that Christ is the only way but had you been born somewhere else you would be culturally and historically conditioned to believe otherwise and, and Keller responds is, well, suppose we concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. So let's, let's grant that. Say, okay, you're right. Let's, let's play along. But the same thing would go for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist, does it follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? In other words, it says, you're a Christian, and the, the process by which you became a Christian was unreliable beliefs. It was just cultural conditioning. Well, for the person who's more of a skeptic, can they then exempt themselves from that very statement and say, oh, no, my process was completely reliable. I was not culturally conditioned. I was not historically conditioned. On what basis can they say that? He goes on. You can't say all claims about religions are historically conditioned except the one I'm making right now. If you insist that no one can determine which beliefs are right and wrong, why should we believe what you're saying? The reality, and here's kind of the crucial part that that speaks to the whole of the exclusivity objection. The reality is that we all make truth claims of some sort, and it's very hard to weigh them responsibly but we have no alternative but to do so. To work at it, to try and set aside my confirmation bias, to try and think about what are beliefs that I red light? Is there a way I can think about those in a reasonable way? And can I investigate that? What if if the Muslim guy is right? Can I try and enter his world and think through that? Because I'm asking him to do that for me as well. And it's, it's incredibly hard to do that but we have no other choice except to give it our best effort, right? The last premise is this. It's arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. It's arrogant to insist your religion is right and to try to convert others to it. It assumes I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, I'm superior, you're inferior. We could go on. But again, the question would be to pose to that individual Are you hoping that I will stop trying to convert others? Well, yes. That's what I'd like you to do. Okay. Then the next question. Aren't you trying to convert me to your non-conversionism? You see, all of these end up boomeranging on themselves in different ways. We call these self-defeating arguments. Um, and the, the thing that I, I will say I appreciate about the video I'll post is the guy actually acknowledges that there's significant potential for this kind of boomerang effect. Um, and it's it's a bit abstract to think on them. I know it's kind of like mind-bending, like, Justin, you're really going to do this to it at you know, 7 o'clock on a Sunday night? Like, well, you take the, take the hand you're dealt and you do your best, right? Um, at the end of the day... I heard Ravi Zacharias talk about this in a different way. He said he sat down with a guy who had, and this is kind of more of an Eastern kind of thought in a lot of ways that's kind of making new light um, in the United States, of Christians want to embrace, or Western thought probably is is more appropriate to say, an either-or kind of logic. Either Christianity or Buddhism. Either Islam or atheism. And what this objection wants to get is, is, is a form of logic that's not either or, but both and. Why not both Christianity and Buddhism? Why not both Islam and atheism, right? And so what, what Ravi Zachariah said, I thought this was brilliant. He said he was discussing with a guy along these lines and they were, um, I think he said, like in a, a coffee shop in France or something. And, and Ravi said, okay, okay, okay. I, I get that you want to have either or, Um, And I want, or I want to have both and, you want, I'm starting to get myself confused. Ravi's arguing for either or. You're with me here. He says, if there's objective truth in the world, I think there has to be an either or. And I'll illustrate it this way. Let's walk across the street. And if there's a bus coming, it's either you or the bus.
1: It's not both
0: you and the bus. Now, because I think it's either or, either me or the bus, I'm not going to go because I know the bus wins. But if you want to think it's both and, go ahead. You can go first. That was how he talked about it. I thought that was kind of a, there's a point where you just come to, it has to be either or. Um, Now I moved quickly through those because um, I've learned quite a while ago that if my wife is going to interrupt me at a certain point, it's better that I preempt that just by a little bit. So I've got 6.58 here. I'm two minutes (laughs) ahead of schedule. Um, So we're... um,
2: something can't be true and not true at the same
0: time. Yeah, exactly. There's different ways of saying that.
2: a, a, a
0: something cannot be true and not true at the same time. Yes, yeah, so laws of basic laws of logic. Law of non-contradiction there.
2: Well, I'm not, I trying to think of, it Or maybe it's Some a law of
0: identity. It can't be A and not A at the same time. I mean, can't be B, yeah, B and not B at, B at the same problem. time. Um, yeah, you
2: can't be proven. You can't prove that, but it's just something we all know,
0: and everything we live by goes by that. Right. Now, the thing is, we can talk about that here. I just don't anticipate that kind of like level of depth of logical discourse is going to come up probably ever in your lifetime. Um, I don't mean to imply that that's where we're hoping to get to, you know, next time you go to McAllister's. <laughs> 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 but, but a bit of thinking through what we want to do in the class is think through, okay, what's underneath the argument here? And as I start to have a more a fuller understanding of what's going on, then in the moment I could probably have a better conversation. Okay? Um, now my PowerPoint got mixed up there. Wrong thing. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do a group discussion here. I'll give you about three minutes. Which version of this problem, the problem of exclusivity, have you encountered? If you could rewind your life and redo that conversation, what would you say? Say, have we encountered this? If so, what did it look like? And if I could go back to that conversation and think through the way I responded, what would that look like? I'll give you 90 seconds in your groups. All right. Uh, Like I said earlier... This week, we look at the the negative side of that argument in the, in the sense of how do I show the premise to be false? Nothing we've said up to this point on the problem of exclusivity does anything to get towards Christianity is actually true. It's just a faulty argument against religion at this point. Um, next week is where we can jump into, okay, now how do we actually show... Christianity is the one true and stands above the rest, right? So that will be the kind of the the one-two punch of last or this week, next week. What I'm going to spend the remainder of our time looking at is probably the biggest defeater argument throughout the history of the world, and it's the problem of suffering, or the problem of evil, or the problem of pain. There's a number of different um, names for it. Um, traditional framing goes something like this go back to ancient philosopher epicurus if god is all-powerful then he could stop suffering if god was all-loving then he would want to stop suffering nevertheless suffering does exist so god must either not be all-powerful or not be all-loving or not exist at all a little bit more recently uh, i may have that on powerpoint i do look at that um a little bit more recently, it's been it's been tweaked somewhat. Is it it's a little more sophisticated? Um, see if you can catch the difference here. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other god or no god may exist, but not the traditional God. So you see recently the kind of incorporation of a pointless aspect of the evil like maybe maybe there is a necessary aspect of some evil but certainly you know so okay so maybe maybe the the objector says humans have a degree of freedom and because of that you have to allow them to make bad choices i get that but what about tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of innocent people children okay, God, what about... That's the pointless, unjustifiable evil. And so it's a little bit more nuanced. But at the core, at least in a philosophical sense, it's pretty close to the same. Um, There's no harder conversation to have for anybody in the world here. And the reason is this. This conversation pretends to be intellectual. It pretends to be philosophical. It pretends to be an abstraction. And it's all lies. It is all lies. It's a deeply... Personal conversation, and so to enter into this part of the class, um, I enter into it with a pretty strong amount of fear and trepidation, um, because we can talk about ideas, but this ultimately is not about ideas. Um, And um, you'll see on on your sheets. There's there's three things. Um, The first one is this: be gentle. Um, because you never, ever know what someone is fully dealing with. Somebody, you've got a great relationship, you may know a little bit of what they're dealing with. Certainly in a, in a venue like this, I have no idea all of your life stories. Um, we're going to put this on the internet, and you know, who knows who will or won't listen, but I certainly don't know their life story. The second one is be gentle with an exclamation mark this time. Um, and in case you couldn't guess it, the third one is all caps, be gentle with three exclamation points. Um, this is, it's just not an abstraction. It's not philosophical. It's not theological at the root of where this conversation comes up. Um, and, and so what I'm going to uh, resist doing, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty adamant about this, is I, I could frame in this conversation by describing some horrific event and then say, isn't God on the hook for that? And it feels gripping in the classroom. It's like, oh, my word. Um, but what I, if, if I do that, what I then do is I then say, whatever this kind of suffering is, it's worse than any other kind of suffering. And I accidentally minimo- minimize what somebody else, perhaps one of you has gone through. I'm not going to do that. Um, and it also takes that kind of suffering, kind of makes it into a, a test tube case, and that's somebody's reality. All right, so I, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, And I think there's a temptation for us to do that in this conversation. I would urge you not to, um, because it can accidentally communicate a lot of things that you really don't want to communicate. Um, They're a massive, massive topic. Um, The last time I taught through apologetics, I actually took about two hour and a half classes to teach on this one, and we have 22 minutes left here. So there's a vast amount that will go unsaid. Because in my three hours I spent on it, I felt like I was only scratching the surface. Um, so i be mean, really um, so I understand there's a lot I'm not saying. And um, so three-part point that I kind of want to look at, I think they're on your notes, is why non-theism fails, why the cross matters, and why Jesus' resurrection matters. Um, I think that gives us at least a, a framework to begin to come to this. Um, The first one is um, noticeably a little bit more intellectual, and the other two, I think, can speak hope to my life and, I think, hope to your life. Before I get into them, I will um, talk about a couple of books. Reason for God, I've already mentioned, there's one chapter in here that's really good. Um, I kind of use Keller's outline in this. Um, I'll say the drawback is this is fairly intellectual in how he talks about it. Um, That's that's just the level at which he chooses to engage. um, So that... Leave that there. Evangelism in a Skeptical World, I talked about last week by Sam Chan. Um, I think he does a really good job, especially on the whole like plausibility structures idea. There were some, I'd read that from a lot of different authors. The way he talked about what forms my beliefs, um, I thought was really helpful. Um, And so you may want to check that out. And then the third one that is most um most relevant to this conversation is Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And the reason that I bring this up as opposed to that one is if, if you just want a 20-page snapshot, grab Reason for God. It's a great little intro, like, oh, there's, here's some ways to talk about this. This book is split into three different um, know, sections, per se. And the first section is how the problem of evil is dealt with by all different worldviews. And essentially tries to show no other worldview has the resources to deal with this problem. They all fail. And then the second one, second section, you know, 100, 150 pages, is dealing with here's how Christianity does have the resources to deal with this, both of which still being very theological, very um, intellectual. And then the third section is when you're in the middle of the storm and stuff is hitting the fan, how do you walk with God? That's not what anything in the first 200 pages talks about. He actually says in the intro... If you're in that storm right now, don't read the first two sections. It will sound cold and heartless and unhelpful. Don't go there. Um, So maybe you're in that spot or maybe you know somebody who is. I would really recommend grabbing this um, and just skip to the third section. Like I can be a better friend to you by reading this. This may help me know God and walk with him better at this time by seeing he walks through some Psalms, um, through Job's life a little bit, Um, And so the the structure there, I think, is really helpful. and makes it worth mentioning. Um, But why non-theism fails? Okay, I'm going to use the whiteboard a little bit here because it it helps me to to draw up a map a little bit. And so the argument basically goes something like, the world ought not be this way. Whatever circumstance we're talking about, it shouldn't be this way. Right? And that, that's, that's where we start, um, which then automatically commits us to there is a way the world should be. If this is how it isn't, then there has to be some way that it is or ought to be, right? We might call this objective morality. This is good. This is valuable. This is the way things are supposed to be. Whether anybody agrees or not, this is the way the world is supposed to be, right? The next point, and this is the one where I assume like so much here, um, and I'm going to post an article on The Hub that I, I wrote that kind of argues this out. I, we wish not have time to talk about it tonight. Um, but it's this. Objective morality can only come from God. So from an evolutionary standpoint, from a, any atheistic standpoint, you don't have a source for what is good. This is, I'm not going to try, it's kind of complex. Um, if you're really interested, check it out. Objective morality can only come from God. Um, he's the only source for what is actually good in the world. And so then the, the conclusion we come to then is on the basis of suffering, they're actually... Must be a god. Because suffering says there actually is an objective morality. There must be a way that things are supposed to be. And the only source where that could come from is a God. Now this doesn't get us the God of Christianity, of course, right? Allah could be that God. A Buddhist understanding of God could theoretically be that God. But this is why non-theism fails. Um, A different way of saying this is evolutionary biology requires death and destruction to move the world forward towards progress. It's natural and good for the weaker to be consumed by the stronger. That survival of the fittest is actually a good thing. That's how humanity moves forward. So the whole world moves forward, right? So in that sense, any kind of imperialism, if we're cutting off the weaker race, would be a good thing. That's how the world, you strengthen the gene pool. Right, and, and so that's, that's kind of the, the flow of, again, that's a, a different way of saying why non-theism fails. Um, there's some great C.S. Lewis quotes on this, and I'm just not gonna go to them because um, I wanna get to the later part. This poem, though I do find incredibly helpful, it, 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 it artfully states what I've been trying to communicate to you. It says this, If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blasts school. It is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. That's pretty powerful. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. That death and destruction is the way forward if chance is the father of all flesh. This is why non-theism fails. Let me move us then. Oops. Let's close that. I don't need that anymore. Um, that's why non-theism fails what does Christianity have to say to it two things why the cross matters why Jesus' resurrection matters when I, when I say non-theism fails it means there must be a God there must be a God and then we, we ask ourselves when, when I'm in that spot and I don't get what's going on I mean God where are you what is happening right now do you care and are you in control And is there a reason for this? The cross says that God cares. The cross says that whatever you may be going through right now, I can promise you there's one thing that's false about it. And the falsehood is that God doesn't care. That's a false statement. And how do I know that God doesn't care is a false statement? Because God himself took his only son and sent him to earth to die a horrible death that even if you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you can't begin to comprehend for you. To relate to you. To become, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 would say, to become like you in every way. To understand experientially what you're going not for him to intellectually say, oh yes, I know what it's like for things to get tough. I can, I can give you a whole dissertation. No, to actually go through it. And to go through worse than anything that anyone would ever experience so that all people at all times can know there's someone who knows. That's why the cross matters. It proves to us that God cares and that he loves us and he's with us in that. It doesn't explain why doesn't give us all those answers and we want to know them but it does tell us that he cares and that he loves us and that's pretty powerful why does the resurrection matter well remember we said why non-theism fails if non-theism fails then there must be a god and if there is a god then what sort of god is he and does he care and is he actually in control that's what we want to know and jesus resurrection tells us he is in control Jesus' resurrection tells us that what I see in front of me right now is not all that there is. And while I can't see anything else right now, and I can't even... If you've been in this spot, you're going to know what I'm saying by this. It's not only that I can't see anything else right now, but I can't even begin to conceive of seeing anything else right now. And yet Jesus' resurrection says... There is something else. And your tears and your pain are not wasted. Ken Rudolph said, I love this, God never wastes the tears of his saints. God never wastes the tears of his saints. And so while it's comforting to know that God is with you, and God is for you, and God cares, and he loves you, I think that's actually insufficient to get us through our suffering. In other words, the cross by itself, apart from the resurrection, is not enough. Because you can, you can know someone's going through something terrible. And you can be there and stand next to them. And I remember s- sitting next to people in the hospital, and it's just like I just sit there, and I say nothing. And I put my arm around, I give them a hug, and we cry, and we're there for maybe days at a time. And yet it only does so much. And we both know that. They know I can't do anything more, and I know I can't do anything more. It's frustrating for us. There's somebody there. But Jesus' resurrection says it's not wasted. In fact, not only is it not wasted, but it's producing something amazing. This is actually, uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Sam Gamgee, is everything sad coming untrue? The resurrection of Jesus says, yes, everything, sad, all this suffering is going to come untrue. And we're actually going to have something greater in eternity because of this. And of course we can't see it right now. Of course we can't. But by faith, we can see that it will happen. I'm going to explain to you next week why, why, why you can have faith in that. Um, we'll get into that. But I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 4, because this is one of the most awesome passages in the whole Bible. If you've got a Bible, whether physical or digital, I would encourage you to, to look at this, because you just see this theology of the resurrection made so explicit and so clear. Um, I, get, I get goosebumps when I, when I read this passage. Does it begin? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 7, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Paul writes the following. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he begins to explain his suffering and his pain and the evil he's experienced. We are afflicted in every way. also may be manifested in our mortal flesh so death is at work is in us but life in you since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written i believe and so i spoke we also believe and so we also speak and here's where it gets even better i love this knowing that he who raised the lord jesus will raise us also with jesus momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear what he says there? He says, we are afflicted in every way. We have suffered in every way. We're perplexed. We don't get it. We have no answers right now. We can't explain it. But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we know we're not forsaken. Because Jesus loves us and he cares and he's with us. We're struck down. We may lose our life. But he's not talking about you got knocked down and you had a bad day. He's saying you've seen your brothers in Christ die. But they're not destroyed because the basis of that is Jesus' resurrection. And they always carry the body of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be shown in verse 17. Paul says, of all of this, you're watching your friends, your family get brutally murdered in front of your eyes for professing faith in Christ. You saw the look in their eyes when they breathed their last breath. You saw their head get lopped off. You'll never forget that image. He says to them, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. It's not wasted. It's not just floating out there and get your way through. And if you knew Jesus would love you, it would be enough to get you through. He says, there's a purpose. And one day you'll see it. And that's an amazing, amazing truth for us to cling to. This passage speaks immense, immense hope into my soul. I hope it does into yours as well. And I understand if you're talking to a Christ, someone who's not a Christian, this is, is not compelling right now. That, that's okay. You can read a book and get the intellectual part later, they can give you those real easy. Um, non theism fails can't it can't hold up its own weight everybody's got to deal with the suffering in the world it's it's everywhere right you don't gotta look hard to see it in your life and your friends lives lives but at the end of the day because of who jesus is and what jesus did you know god still loves me and he hasn't forgotten it's not an accident he's not saying oops i wasn't supposed to let that happen to Justin." He's for me and fighting with me and not only is it not an accident but it's actually it's actually being used for something amazing for my good. We'll be undone one day and I'm going to see beyond all comparison whoa God look what you were up to. May that day be soon. Let me close in prayer. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to see and know what you're doing. Help us to walk today with the eyes of faith, not by sight. Help us to look to the things that are seen, or not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Help us to focus on the eternal God. As we stumble through life and we try to find ways to honor you and to love you and to serve you, give us the grace to see with the eyes of faith what it looks like to love you, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.